Hello, welcome back to the Podcast of Things. I'm here with Anna Grant Bolton, president of the Trinity Homelessness Project and abolition community organizer in Evanston, in Evanston, Illinois, and currently spearheading the Food Justice Initiative of Trinity and also organizing community fridges back in Evanston. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for that generous introduction, Jake. I appreciate it. It's great to have you on the podcast, long awaited. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Obviously, you're from Evanston, Illinois. Um, Illinois. Do you say Illinois or I Illinois? I say Illinois, but the okay. non-Illinoisans tend to say Illinois. So I, I'm whatever sh- suits your fancy. I'm pretty sure you know this, but I was born in Illinois. I do know that. Yeah. yeah. So I guess you do have claim to And Illinois I say Illinois. So <laughs> what are you going to tell me about it? So what brings you to Trinity, first and foremost? It's a great question. You know, it's a little bit random. A lot of it has to do with money. I wanted to go to a small liberal arts college mm-hmm. on the East Coast, Um I like the New England kind of vibe situation going on. Um, Wanted to spread my wings a little bit, even though I love Evanston. Um, And Trinity was one of the places that I knew I could get a scholarship from. Mm -hmm. And I did. And they have really great like social justice programming. And I love the campus. So it all worked out. Yeah, and you're doing great things, and Thank and do you. you like the small college feel? Or has I it... love the small college feel. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Anyone listening in high school, totally recommend. <laughs> it's electric. Yes. So, um, what are you studying here at Trinity College? I'm studying human rights and public policy with a minor in community action. Human rights and public policy. So that's those are two majors. Just yes. for clarification, human rights Thank and you. public policy. So, what do you think of them? How did you get into them? Did you know from day one? Um, are you certainly going to double major? Because I know some people double major and then slowly fall out of <laughs> yes. love with one or the other, you know? I actually just declared public policy and I've been declared for human rights. Awesome. I originally went in thinking either political science or public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I loved the political science class that I took, Prisons and Justice, yeah. um, which Jake is very well acquainted with. Oh, we love that class. We love that Shout class. Shout out to Professor Anna <laughs> Terwheel, brilliant professor. She's incredible. Um, but I, I knew I wanted to be doing policy work specifically around prisons if I could. And then I took a human rights class my first semester of college and just fell in love with it too. Um, And yeah, not much to say about it, but I do think the nice thing that about human rights is it's very like globally focused. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to say that there's not human rights violations happening in the United States, which I'm sure we will talk about very soon. Um, But I think it it complements public policy quite well and that public policy is more grounded in U.S. things. Right, because, I mean, it's hard to expand because it's public policy and law is technically the major and you can only cover the laws in so many countries. It's (laughs) it's complex enough in just Connecticut. But so so why didn't you why did you choose public policy over political science? I'm offended here as a political science guy myself. I don't know. I don't I I just have always wanted to do not always wanted to do. For a while I've wanted to do um kind of grassroots policy stuff mm. like changing systems and um I wanted since human rights is already a little bit more um a little bit more of like a heady intellectual. Yeah, abstract um, from above. Yeah, yeah, which political science also is, at least right. the class that I took. Totally I is. thought that um, public policy and law would be a nice, more okay. practical compliment. All right, I'll allow it. I'll <laughs> allow it for now. So you say you've always wanted to. I assume when you were younger you wanted to be an astronaut or whatnot, <laughs> something like that. We don't have to get into that A bus that driver. Now. A bus yeah. driver, really? And a construction foreman. 
Interesting. Yeah. How old were you when you wanted to do that? Um, three and five. Three and five. Yeah. You want to be a construction <laughs> foreman at age five. At age three, at actually. At age three, okay. <laughs> well, that's incredible. When I was three years old, what I wanted to be? Probably a dinosaur or something that's like a good that. One. But uh, <laughs> yeah. No. So the topic of today is is a loaded one. And yes. let me tell you now, Anna Grant Bolton will be featured on this podcast many times. <laughs> I expect so this to be a reoccurring <laughs> multi part series about prisons and I don't know if prison <laughs> abolition and general system change, yes. particularly in the United States, but also in the rest of the world. So It's all so interconnected. It's all so interconnected, and that's why there's going to need to be multiple, multiple podcasts yes. on the topic. So, so Get comfortable. Get comfortable. <laughs> get comfortable. Maybe some people can binge listen to yes. these once all the episodes <laughs> come out, but... um. No, so here's the rough outline of the show, the table of contents, if mm. you will. We're going to be talking about the problems with prisons. Then we're going to be exploring possible solutions in the mm-hmm. second half. So be aware of both of them. If you think uh, I already know all the problems with prisons, feel free to skip to that second part. But um, I think it'll be an engaging conversation no matter so. what you already know. So how should we start? What's coming to your mind first? Oh, gosh. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Um there's lots of problems with yeah. prisons, in my opinion. Right. Um, and to me, they fall on different layers. Mm-hmm. Like, there's kind of more, like, philosophical problems to me. And then there's, like, practical policy problems. Um, and so, and feel free to guide us in whatever direction. Right. But I think, on the one hand, you have, like, do prisons even work to reduce violence? I think that right. we want to reduce violence. Do they work to do that? Um and then on the other hand, you have, um, like, is it okay to be caging human beings? And what are the right. problems and moral implications with that? Right, definitely. And let's not forget that attached to that question, do pris- the first question, do prisons actually cure violence, yeah. is policing. Do policing yes. Does policing prevent, stop, remedy violence? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's another question altogether. So mm-hmm. let's start with just the general facts, first of all. Are prisons working in America? I think um, from the learning that I've done, I've taken um, a few classes on this, and this has been my biggest passion for quite a while. So there's tons I don't know, but I also have, you know, this is what I spend a lot of my time thinking mm-hmm. about and learning about. Um, we first of all know that the United States incarcerates more of its population um, than any other country, yeah. and significantly so. As a percentage, yes, yeah. the highest uh, incarcerator in the world. And that's even excluding usually people that are in jail in pretrial right. detention. Which so. is so many people. And that's a higher percentage than China, than all these authoritarian regimes. Significantly that, more. Significantly. Yeah, in fact, the United States have has 25% of um, the world's prison population, but only 5%. Um, of its total population. So just like extremely disproportionate rates of incarceration. Um, And then at the same time, we see that we don't have particularly low rates of violence in the United States. No, definitely not. So I think like at the most broad level we see, we're caging tons of people. We're putting tons of people in prisons and we still have like a good amount of violence. Um, And I think that that's like, you know, maybe one of the core arguments is like, if it was working, then the United States would have such little violence because we're incarcerating so many people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and then going off that, just to, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm thinking of too much, <laughs> but going to policing, I mean, 
Chicago invests almost more than any of its more than any other city as a percentage of its budget into p- the police force. I think it's forty percent, or it was recently as of twenty sixteen, and it what has like the highest crime rate in the United States, something like One that. One of them, yeah. So the question then is why is why are all these police not creating decreasing crime rates? It's yeah. like it's but it's weird because in the in the conception, in the ideology of Americans, we see, oh, well, prisons and police prevent policing. If it weren't for that, it would be rampage violence. But then the problem is it's rampage violence already. <laughs> yeah. And it's so ingrained to us that prisons and policing are public safety. And so when we say let's get rid of prisons and policing, I think what a lot of people are hearing is let's get rid of all of our public safety systems. Right. They think it's going to be like all out war, just all on the streets. Yeah, anarchy. Right. It's going to be anarchy. But then it's strange because those same people will tell you that it's already anarchy. (laughs) So there's a little inconsistency. And and it totally it stems from this. uh, I know in Prisons and Justice we talked about how this is related to John Locke. Oh, but yes. Where where they where you know it's this idea that if you commit any sort of crime, if you break any crime kind of any kind of law, you're like a threat to society. You're a fundamentally bad person. You are different. Like you're inhuman, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And that is that is really the justification. That's why everyone sleeps at night. Plus the fact that prisons are often remote places, and you don't have to see that violence with right. your own eyes. But it's so intertwined with that ideology, which is, of course, so intertwined with the ideology, the capitalist ideology, neoliberal ideology of personal choice and individual mm-hmm. responsibility. But I, I think that that's a really important aspect of it. And it's something that people don't think about. You take it for granted. Yeah, you totally take it for granted. And so I think like the big I would say one thing that I'll just say at the onset and then we'll totally discuss more yeah. is when I say like I want to ab- be a part of a movement that abolishes prisons and police. What I'm not saying is I want to be a part of a movement that abolishes public safety. In fact, I want the absolute opposite. I right. want to like build, be a part of building systems that actually keep us all safe. Um, and so I think that's the goal. The goal isn't to get rid of these um, systems of public safety, but to actually build up ones that keep us all safe and that don't lead specifically black, brown, and poor people yeah. um, to be, you know, disproportionately locked in cages or if not that be connected to people who are have their communities Mm -hmm. ruptured um, or just be in fear of that happening i mean absolutely that is such a huge point because it's clear that right now we don't have public safety i mean that's the Mm -hmm. fact of the matter and it's also clear that what the prison really does is target people that are impoverished and everybody will say oh well you know there's lots of people in poverty who don't commit crimes but there's such a large proportion of of people in prison that are in prison for crimes of survival, of trying to mm-hmm. stay alive, or violent crimes that also come as a result of being in gangs for survival. When, when you're mm-hmm. in that type of poverty, no one would tell you. There's no one out there. You're not going to find someone that says the best predictor of imprisonment is not poverty. Am I correct? I would think so, yeah. I mean, it's like it's just a fact. The people in prison are people that are impoverished almost all the time. Of course, not all the time, but a very, very high percentage. Mm -hmm. And a very high percentage of those people are black, brown, from black, brown communities. And I mean, I think it's 33% or something is is black and brown people in the United States, whereas they are 70% of the U.S. prison population. It's just completely disproportionate. Mm -hmm. And, And that's a fundamental problem. And so then you have to at some point, you have to reckon with the prison and the policing system as 
a way of protecting a ruling class mm -hmm. and protecting a private property and kind of, you know, like it'll deal with these people that that are struggling for survival. It'll deal with these people that are have been historically racially uh, discriminated against and today still live in economic poverty and degradation while it'll give the semblance of protection <laughs> to these white, rich families, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's Angela Davis who says that prisons don't disappear. Wait, she says that prisons disappear people, not social problems. Or right. Or the converse of that. Mm -hmm. um, essentially saying that what prisons don't do is they don't solve society's problems. They don't reduce violence, but they really disappear our most marginalized people um, as opposed to actually reckoning with these systems of violence and poverty that we have, you know, as opposed to addressing the root causes of violence, which is disproportionately systems of violence right. or trauma um, born of systems of violence. What we do is we take people who are often our most traumatized citizens or community members and we put them in cages and traumatize them some more. And then when we finally do let them out, if we let them out ever, we expect them to go back and lead productive lives and completely assimilate um, despite right. having literally everything stacked against them. And it's just such a, you know, I think the more we take steps back and like from the systems that we're in now um, and look at it with more clear eyes, it's just so fundamentally cruel. It is. And it's, it's, it's fundamentally ridiculous is what it is mm -hmm. because you have to realize that the, the neighborhoods that have the most crime are the neighborhoods with the most poverty, but yet we'll still tell ourselves, oh, you know, you should have not made that choice. That was a dumb mm -hmm. decision. And, and it's just like, it, it honestly, it baffles me because it's so clear. The, the disparities are so clear between the two things. And for some reason, people think it's working. I mean, a lot of people will tell you that we have too many people in prison. They'll hear the first stat and they'll say, yeah. And, but then their response will be, I don't know what the response will be. A lot of people say we should have more education. Education mm -hmm. of what? Like, do you want me to go down to these places that are impoverished with flyers that say, don't steal, don't kill? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's it's cycles of trauma, like you said. And yeah. it's just, it's so ingrained in our culture that that is not a problem. Yeah. And I think, like, the word for it, as you said, really is ridiculous. Like, I, I think it's so easy. And I myself lived almost my whole life in this bubble of, like, of course it makes sense that prisons and police um, equal public safety. Yeah, like, those too. are so conflated, and, like, everyone's taught that. Um, or that's not true. At least, like, people from, like, white upper-middle-class backgrounds like mm -hmm. mine are disproportionately taught that. Um, but, like, the more we take steps back, why would we think that um, cutting people off from all of their relationships and beauty and nature and education and support services, why would we ever think that that would create more safe societies? You know, it just it fundamentally doesn't make sense on even the most standard logical levels. Well, I suppose that the argument is that what we're going to do is we're going to take these people that are threats to society out of society. It's predicated on the idea of innocence versus guilt. So there's some mm -hmm. people who are guilty and there's some people who are 
innocent law-abiding citizens and these two citizens are fundamentally different types of people so if we can just separate out the bad apples the bad apple syndrome is uh yeah the bad apple ideology <laughs> really plagues our time mm-hmm. like it's the uh, it's the same thing with policing it's like oh well once we just get the bad uh-huh. apples out we'll be fine right yeah. it, no one wants to think about it as an institution as a system exactly. and i say no one as you get more and more into college and readings everyone mm-hmm. is doing that of course <laughs> so it's not no one but i mean of the general populace but it's basically the theory of prisons as you separate out these bad apples from the good apples and all the good apples will live together in harmony. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I guess there is some logic to that, but then you have to realize who are these bad apples. And these mm-hmm. bad apples are disproportionately people of color and people that are in poverty. So mm-hmm. what you're left with is a bunch of good apples mm-hmm. who are white and upper middle class, right? All these sorts yeah. of things. And, and you know, you see it. You, you see it both in terms of poverty. I mean, walk from West Hartford to regular Hartford, as I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. It just, it looks different. It is different. Mm -hmm. The people living there are living under different conditions. And I always say, I always say this because people say, well, you know, it's not that you're more likely to get arrested. Like I've heard a lot of people say, it's not that you're more likely to get arrested just because you live in a place of poverty. It's just, if you break a law, you're going to get arrested. Well, the thing is that when you have poverty, then you're going to have more police surveillance there mm-hmm. because there's more crime to address mm-hmm. that crime. Okay, fine. You put the police there to more you need more police for more crime. Does that work? I don't know, but I understand that logic. But the fact of the matter is that I and everyone else have done everyone mm-hmm. has done illegal things. Everyone has done yes. illegal things. The question is whether you're going to be caught. Mm-hmm. And somehow we discursively construct the people who are caught as bad and evil <laughs> yeah. and the people who aren't caught as like, oh, it's just a kid. You know what I mean? When the only thing separating who's caught and who's not most of the time is like wealth and yes. race. Right. And the reason not wealth and race, because people are going to hear that and what they're going to say is that's not true. The laws are the same for everyone. The laws don't say, well, the fact of the matter is you have to go beyond the text of the law and see how that actually plays out in reality. Because Mm -hmm. there's just not as many police in my neighborhood as there are in the neighborhood right next to me where there's a lot more people in poverty and a lot more people of color. So mm-hmm. that there's race and there's wealth and that is the difference. You're shielded in this sort in these sorts of spaces, mm-hmm. I think. You walk around college campuses and not saying I'm sure nobody at Trinity does drugs or oh, drinks yeah. or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I've heard um, yep. just from other colleges that that's a thing that happens. Um and those college kids are almost never um put behind bars never. for doing these things that like for doing cocaine at college or parties, dealing you drugs. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then if you walk a few blocks off campus and you're um, profiled as someone who's low income, poor, um, fits this like idea that, um, you know, America has concocted of what a quote unquote criminal looks like. Yeah. And suddenly you could be facing like a decade in prison, like 10 years of your life behind bars without seeing your family. Um, I oh. mean, it's just like, it's, the cruelty of it is just unimaginable. And it's, yeah, as you said, we all break laws. We're all quote unquote criminals. We're all, we're, none of us are innocent here. The question is just who do we want to incarcerate? Yeah. And then not to mention the fact that laws are, laws are a product, like laws (laughs) create what is good and bad. You know, like it's not a, it's not a universal fact, objective fact. Mm -hmm. Those types like the, it's like sometimes like laws used to put people in prison for selling cannabis. Now they don't. So what happened? Like 
what happened is that the human zeitgeist changed and mm-hmm. we are now not putting people in cages for something that we were. We're now not executing people for being witches, for example. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is that that proves that law is something that, that ebbs and flows. It's not, yeah. a, it's not a clear uh, delineation. Yeah, it is arbitrary. And right, I don't think arbitrary. that like defining violence is arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So I want to make that clearer distinction, but I don't think that laws in general, that our current legal system and what's putting people behind bars does a really good job of discerning what is violent and what is not. Because I would argue that, you know, stripping people from their families and all of their connection, that that in itself it's, is yeah. violent. It's state um, violence. That's what it is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you read about the Soviet gulag or the Chinese, um, you know, prison camps or wherever, there's a million autocratic examples, and you hear the statistics. If you heard one million people in jail, 25%, you'd be like, oh, that's horrible. But for some (laughs) reason, you don't... Here in America, when you hear those stats we talked about, you say, wow, man, people really need to get their act together. Yeah, we need more police in prison. Yeah, that's it. I'll tell you. But but, so before I go on to my next point, which is about... I'm going to speak it into existence now before I forget it. What was it? I'm already forgetting. So... Trinity College, right? Yes. You hear it all the time. Now, not every listener here goes to Trinity College. Not every listener has been to Trinity College. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a like a bubble on a hill inside mm-hmm. of a pretty impoverished neighborhood. So the mm-hmm. first thing people will ask you is, is it safe there? Like, are the locals safe or do the locals mm-hmm. endanger you? And to that end, we have police on campus. And I will tell you now from personal experience that the police are there keep others out and not mm-hmm. to police what is inside. Right. Just like there's tons of police outside policing those populations mm-hmm. and those communities. And that just is a testament to the difference in surveillance. I mean, right. people are inebriated every weekend. Mm-hmm. The, what time is it now? It's a Saturday at 633. Um, I mean, maybe not at Trinity College. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to lie, actually. I'm not even going to lie. There's a lot of people that yeah. are already <laughs> drunk at this point at Trinity mm-hmm. College. And I mean... They're not considered drunkards. They're just not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, and then my second point, I'm trying to remember, but I can't right now. So I'll let you sure take the stage. One. Yeah. Oh, take the stage. What should I take the stage with? Um, yeah, I mean, it really comes down to what Michelle Alexander's argument is in The New Jim Crow. I would highly, highly recommend that book to mm, anyone. I still haven't read that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a classic. Um, I, I just read it, actually, a few months ago, so oh, I was nice. late on the new Jim Crow train, but um, I would highly recommend it. It's really comprehensive and thoughtful, but what it really talks about is how um, this prison industrial complex, as it's called, or the connection between prisons and the police and all the systems that maintain those systems. Um, and all the systems they maintain. Yes. <laughs> um really evolves, um, evolved from slavery as um, this new iteration of racial caste. And so I'm not ever going to make the argument that um, the current prison system we have is like slavery, mm-hmm. is like exactly as bad as slavery in the United States. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to make that argument. Um, but I do think that it's clear that it has um, if you trace the lineage of yeah. um, prisons, they really evolved um, after the Jim Crow era to maintain this um, racial order and continue to incarcerate and hurt and marginalize 
um, the people on the bottom who are disproportionately black and brown um, and limit their success and their upward mobility in a similar way that um, past racial caste systems have. And if, if you study the history, it's really striking how this prison boom um, surfaced like immediately following following um, the fall of these past systems of yeah. um, racialized caste, racialized caste. violence. And, yeah, and just going off that, I mean, let's let's be clear. One thing that the the prison system has served to over hundreds of years maintain racial disparities. I mean, mm-hmm. something we talked about actually right before we started this. America is certainly one of the countries one of the richest countries in the world, but has one of the biggest wealth inequalities in the world, mm-hmm. along with all those statistics. And so what a lot of people will say is they will say, slavery was so many hundred years ago. I mean, whatever, get over it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. These things have real effects. And I mean, it's that's the fact of the matter. It's prison and policing, prisons and policing have evolved from mm-hmm. these types of things, from convict leasing and all, all sorts of, there's a million mm-hmm. examples. Yeah. There's tons of books to read about it. But So many books to read. <laughs> so many books to read. I would also recommend No More Police. I'm reading it right mm-hmm. now, and I, I really like it. But, um, uh, I mean, so, for example, let's take today, because a lot of people will say, you know, will say, there's a, there's a belief that America that in America it's a level playing field and all you have to do is work hard and you'll make it to the top. It's mm, just, it's mm-hmm. it's a so, fundamental belief. Yeah. I had this debate with my friends in Houston, shout out to them, back, uh, <laughs> back over winter break. But the fact of the matter is that it is not that way. A, mm-hmm. America does not have the highest upward social mobility if you want to talk not about statistics. <laughs> we think of it that way. Mm-hmm. We definitely think of it that way. And B, at some point someone has to reckon with the the fact that black people let's just take black people for now i know it's black and brown generally that black people are disproportionately those that are impoverished and those that are poorer than white people mm-hmm. without providing a racist argument because i mean i don't see one like, mm-hmm. like there is either... no way to justify it without like really playing into like there's no no explanation for well, it. Well, people will people will take it into these like ways to like smoke and mirrors yeah, mask it. it, right? Yeah, abstract, like, in a way that. So instead of saying, "Oh, it's because people with uh, black skin don't work as hard," they'll say, "Oh, it's because people with people with black skin, their culture is not good." Like, well, first of all, what shaped these <laughs> so cultures that you that you hate so much, right? Yeah. And second of all, that is a racist thing. Like, so yeah. as a virtue of their yeah. skin color, they have worse culture. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Is really what it comes down to, and you see that with a lot of these arguments. And I don't really, I try not to fault the people who have these beliefs because it's been so ingrained into oh, a lot of us. You I know? mean, the reality is I had these beliefs at least like two years ago. Max, yeah, minimum, totally. You know? um, and so like, you know, got to give people grace and like give people 100%. space to grow. And at the same time, like these beliefs, one, are incredibly hurtful and two, just don't jive with what is happening right. in the United States. And I think that's a lot about what like abolition as like a political philosophy is mm-hmm. about is like taking a few steps back and being like, okay, let's, let's try to imagine this, um, you know, from a new angle and see, yeah. does this make sense at all? And I think that the um, prison system doesn't make sense at all, right. both on like a moral and a political level. Um, and so if it doesn't make sense, what can we build instead? Yeah, and I think for me, I think that's a great summary of what abolition is. And I will say that 
this idea that abolition has of of examining the common sense of the prisons and policing and basically making the argument that this common sense idea of prisons and policing we have as solutions should be re-examined and shown that it is not as not as solidified, not as true as we mm-hmm. think it is. I am 100% on board with that. I think it's hard not to be. I think mm-hmm. once you really, and again, I don't fault anyone who has these arguments, but we do have to admit that they are extremely prevalent. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if yeah. if you had to take a percentage guess, what would you say? Or the percentage percentage of people that would that would even begin to question whether prisons and policing do don't work. Um, I would say. So the people who would question... Right, the people who would question. Obviously, I, you don't have that number. You have to <laughs> estimate. I also think that it would... It, it depends on where you ask it. I think, from my understanding, if you look into the communities that are most mm-hmm. negatively impacted by police um, or are targeted by systems of policing, a lot of the people um, would say, yeah, no, the police don't protect us. Right. You know? And so I think if you ask them, I think it would actually be like, a decent amount but i think if you ask right. upper middle class white people um less than 10 percent yeah maybe less than oh, that pff, way less than that, in my opinion i mean because first of all i would say that not everybody in those communities that are victims of police violence is outside of this ideology that totally. prisons and police yeah. are in, in, in fact like i i don't I haven't conducted a survey, but my estimation is that like 99.9% of all people in the U.S. say like see prisons and policing as that's what you do. That's what it is. It's common sense. And so this idea that we should we should unpack, unravel that common sense Mm -hmm. and look to see whether it's working or not is the first step. And it's one that everyone should be taking in my opinion. I totally agree. And if you're going to be living in the United States and um, so many, so many of our citizens or residents are incarcerated. Um, I think that the onus is on us to at least learn about incarceration. Right. You know, even if you aren't approaching it from a point of like, I want to be an abolitionist. Like, it's on all of us to understand this system that is impacting so many of our people. In fact, like one in three people in the United States um, have a close relative or relationship with someone who has been incarcerated or is currently incarcerated, which is so many people. And then if if you narrow that down by certain communities, low income communities, it's going to be a lot more. Oh, but yeah. even so, um, it really does impact all of us in the fabric of our communities. And I really think that, um, you know, creating a different vision of public safety that would um, keep us all safe is really, it would benefit us all. Right, and I agree. And I think in a second we'll start getting to talking about real solutions to this problem because right now we're identifying a problem where the question is what do we do? And I think it definitely starts with some common sense things that should be common Mm -hmm. sense. Like, I mean, these these laws like stop and frisk or the three strike rules, like Mm -hmm. that is just absurd. Or or people in prison for life for survival things, Mm -hmm. those types of things. And and it goes beyond that, of course, but those are the bare minimum. But before we get to that, I think it's important to talk about how violent and how horrible prisons really are because I don't think people really understand that. Yeah, and I think a disclaimer for me would be like, I've studied a lot about prisons, um, but I've never even stepped foot inside of a Mm. prison. And so I think that's like I'm I have no um, like experience like being incarcerated. None of my close family members or friends have been. So like because of that, like I'm lacking 
um, like like really important lived experiences. Right. But I also have tried really hard to learn from those lived experiences. Right. So anything I speak of is not going to be speaking from. No, um, and me too. And me too. So that's I'm... a um, just wanted to put that out there. But I, yeah, let's let's talk about that because yeah. I think it's really something that our society does a good job of is saying, okay, we're going to put these people in prison and then we completely forget about them or we try to completely forget about them. We talk about people going to prison, but the idea is so abstracted and amorphous and like scary that I think people don't even like to think of it. Oh, yeah. I think it is really scary. And I think that's exactly why we do need to think of it because people are living, so many people are living um, in prison or in jail. And so like we have a responsibility to right talk about what that's like so yeah and i i have never been in a prison myself either nor have i been incarcerated i've i don't know anyone that's incarcerated though i do know some people who've had run-ins with police mm-hmm. and those types of things typically um typically friends that fit the demographics we were talking about earlier but i mean I, i'm actually going to a prison for the first time in like five days or so wow. with the uh with um with some program I'm doing, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I definitely don't have any firsthand experience either. And I think that's important. But I also think that people are scared of prisons. But mm-hmm. a lot of people will also say that prisons aren't that bad. And if you know, if you if you tell people about like the way that prisons are in Sweden or these <laughs> these kind of Nordic countries, they'll say like, "Well, why are <laughs> why are criminals deserving of these nice beds?" And like, they, yeah. there's a there's a part of our society that wants it to be terrible. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I totally agree. Um, not that I, I, I'm not a part of that um, contingent, but I right. totally no, agree. No, I, I see. I think people exists. would know what you were meant. What um, you meant. But yeah, let's talk about like let's try to put ourselves in the minds of incarcerated mm-hmm. people, which of course we can never do completely. But um, so you're unexpectedly taken from your family, right? And you're put behind bars in jail mm-hmm. and you could be there for months if months years even if your family or loved ones don't have say five thousand upwards of um you know it could that be, system is a whole different be, episode is what that, is. <laughs> that is a whole different episode um and so if you're poor you could be in there for months and months and not even have a trial date and so just right. imagine living behind bars unexpectedly pulled from let's say your dorm room and mm-hmm. placed behind bars um and you have no idea if i was when pulled from my dorm room if i was pulled from my dorm room and put behind bars i would have little to no fear in my heart because i know that somehow i'm going to be out on some right. type of bail or somehow you know like yeah. it's just a completely different scenario not to mention that this pre-trial detention do you like it's not like finding a job is not that easy if you work a job and live paycheck to paycheck if you are supporting a family living paycheck to paycheck and you are in prison for let's let's say just one month not prison jail for Mm -hmm. just one month before you are convicted of guilt right so before even anyone has declared you guilty what are your kids doing at that point Mm -hmm. what are you doing like let's just say you get out innocent whose fault is it then whose fault is all that Mm-hmm. All that stress, yeah. all that horror, all that not knowing if you're going to be able to eat. So, like, to not know whether you're going to be able to eat is a feeling that most people don't mm-hmm. understand, myself included. Like, mm-hmm. I have no idea what that feels like. I cannot even begin to imagine. But the fact that that pre-trial detention can change the lives of, A, the person in prison and the person rely- the people relying upon them, yeah. which 
I mean, I, I th- I'm pretty sure that people in prison are disproportionately men who are currently heads of households, quote unquote, which is, of course, a whole nother whole nother different mm-hmm. sociological effect. But um, is that true? Do you know? Um, I, I know that lots of people in prison have um, kids, but I'm not sure if the majority. Of them OK, do. yeah, I, I, I'm not sure either. But I do I do think it is disproportionately men and which is, of course, you know based on how our society is construed, typically more likely to be supporting families. And, I mean, think about the people that, A, are in prison, and then, B, depend upon them. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a wild effect. It's a crazy effect from which a family might never recover. Yeah, absolutely. Say you're in prison for a month and your kids have literally, let's say you don't have um, a mom who can take care of your kids. Let's say she lives in a different country mm-hmm. or you don't have the social safety net that I think a lot of people in privilege have right um your kids may be put into foster care right and that can be extremely traumatizing for them too um and so this is even before we even get to the trial and your job like chances are you'll lose your job unless you're like you know you have a cushy um white collar office job which most people who are being incarcerated don't so you lose your job it goes what i think a lot of people didn't know i didn't know this until the summer is even if you're not um, found guilty, it's still on your record. Yes. Um, yes. And you can get you like jobs can say we're not going to hire you. Um, right. Because it's on your record, so you lose your job. You um, may lose your kids at least temporarily. And when you have to find a new job, and if you're living to paycheck to paycheck, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, even if you don't have to find a new job, like, do you have time to like fight for your kids in court? Mm-hmm. Do you have time to, you know, get yourself back on the ground while you have to work to survive? Yeah. I mean, it's all these sorts of things, and it's these these multiple forces upon you in this time where, in a time where, and I think it should be said. Um, I was reading a Stephen Dillon's book. It's called Fugitive Life and with colon some other things. <laughs> I've forgotten what they are. But um, he talks about certain uh, black theorists that said they didn't – who were in prison and said that they didn't see the inside of the prison as much different from the outside of the prison. So mm-hmm. I think it should be noted that even before this pretrial detention, the forces of poverty are so powerful yeah. that you're paycheck to paycheck that, you know, you could be arrested at any time. And there's there's so many more things that I can't even think of. But housing, housing, you can lose your housing, you can lose yeah. your housing out of nowhere. Yeah. If you don't have I mean, two layers to that one, if you don't have enough money saved up um, to pay like you know, a month, two months, three months of rent, which right. so many people do not have that yeah. money saved up, um, you lose your housing. And then it's going to be even harder to find housing in the future because now you have something on your record, even if you're not found guilty. Right. And if you are, you know, that's an even bigger barrier. Um, food. Food, yeah. Food for multiple people. And and the other thing is time. Like, it shouldn't be underestimated the meet, the necessity of social relationships, mm-hmm. A, with your family and B, with your friends. Like, the reality of the fact is I know people will say, oh, well, you know, if you're working hard, you won't be in this situation. A lot of these people work two, three jobs. Yeah. Like, that, it is a fact. And that is so much hard. Like, you need to work so much harder to do that than to work, um, you know, a, a cushy white collar nine to five. I know, right, right. And, and then the 
conception of harder, like what is hard work? There's some people that are billionaires because they had a good idea and now they delegate yeah, it to their CEO, no. whatnot. You know, uh-huh. They don't do anything. But and then the second thing is, I, wh- why is hard work so valued anyway? <laughs> like why yeah. why is it that to be valuable? There's so many podcast episodes. I know. I mean, yeah. why is it that to be valuable you have to sit there and work your whole life away for someone else and then not see the products of your own labor? Like it's <laughs> it's a whole weird societal thing that we've somehow Strange. come to accept. Yeah. And then, and then when you're in pretrial detention, after all these things that we've talked about, after all these forces, so f- let's say, A, when you're in poverty, all these forces, and B, especially after this pretrial detention, assuming you're found innocent, or even if you're not and you get out of prison, the fact of the matter is you're more likely to commit what is considered a crime in the future. Mm-hmm. Because that's what you, I, I mean, that's just... You're going to need to do it. It doesn't make yeah. you a bad person. You're, not, you're going to need to do it. You're going to be put in situations where it's more likely, where you're around more people that are doing it. All of the opportunities to legally climb the economic ladder are, like, stripped away from you. Yeah. You don't have access to easy housing. And you can't climb the economic yeah. ladder legally <laughs> right. anyway. Good luck. One in a million. <laughs> One in a million is generous. Yeah. Um. And so it's like and – then, and then we, like, shame people and shake our heads and – um, look down upon people who do end up committing crimes after right. they have all of, almost, if not all of their legal options for, you know, living a decent life taken away from them, you mm-hmm. know? Have if you, you can't, oh, go ahead. No, 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 please finish. I was, I was going on a tangent, sorry. Please. I was just going to say, if you can't make it um, in, like, the legal economy, you know, and you, you have kids to feed, you have your own stomach to feed, you have housing for yourself, like, what do you expect people to do? Right. And, and the thing is that violence is intertwined with these, quote unquote, illegal activities. You know, well, actually not quote unquote, they are illegal, but these quote unquote wrong activities like when you're stealing, when you're selling illegal drugs, there's violence intertwined with that because it's supposed to be in an area of subversion away from the police. So the violence becomes intertwined with that. And if you are involved in violence, it doesn't necessarily make you worse or better than anyone else. Like, yeah. have you ever seen Les Mis? That was my question. <laughs> I haven't, but my grandpa speaks very highly yeah. of it. So I, I've heard anecdotes from him. I haven't seen it either, but there's this <laughs> there's this powerful scene where well actually I think it's the the whole concept of the movie. My mom loves this movie. <laughs> but someone steals bread to yes. feed their family, yeah. right? And then the guy is like hunting him down for the rest of his life. Yeah, my he grandpa stole the always bread. talks about right. that scene. So then yeah. my question is, where did the sympathy for the guy who stole the bread in his time of need, where did that lose the ideological battle in our society? It's law. Like, nobody cares about that. Nobody sees that. And, I mean, I guess some people do see it as... It's a strange thing because some people will have sympathy. They'll be like, oh, you know, I could understand... But yeah, lock him up. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's like it's like uh yeah, but no. It's kind of it's a, yeah. it's kind of a strange thing and and I just don't understand why. Yeah. It must be intertwined with capitalism and the need to produce and produce and produce work hard. Yeah, and I think it I mean, I really think that the foundation of the only reason why we I'll say this quickly and then we can get to what would happen, you know, what it's like right. to actually being yes. incarcerated, just trying to put our minds there. Mm-hmm. Um I think the only way that we're able to maintain like prisons and policing is by saying these people who are incarcerated are fundamentally different than I am. And they, they deserve are fundamentally it. worse people. Yeah. And I would never do that. You know? Yes, I know. Oh my God. It's that's exactly it. But then even if you've done the same thing yeah. and there's also an idea that people that like I, I have I've read some reports, I don't know how robust or 
factual they are that say that most people that are in prison are actually like quote unquote violent offenders and whatnot. But there's also like tends to be a uh, a thought process that oh the only people who are behind bars are the real serial killers like from criminal minds like those people are few and far between yeah the, and. Yeah. The people behind bars, I mean, a lot of them, uh, is it true? I'm pretty sure that it's true that most people that are behind bars are awaiting trial. That's probably true. I think I know true. that I know that the confusion about the, um, like, violent offender statistic, mm-hmm. I believe there's a lot more people who enter the prison system, um, like, on a yearly basis that enter for nonviolent crimes. But exactly. The, but if you look at 10 random people behind bars – um, it's, I don't, I, if I remember correctly, um, the majority or at least half close to half are people who are, um, sentenced for violent crimes because they're, they're so much longer. Does right. that make yes. sense? Yes. And, and, um, not to mention if you go there once, the recidivism rate is, right. I think it's 78%. I, yeah. if you told me it was higher, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. And I think, um, and this is something that we can get to this podcast, another podcast, we're just ch- talking individually. We're chugging along, yeah. <laughs> I think that something that I think often comes up in conversations about reform and or abolition is mm-hmm. like, can you believe that all of these like good people are put behind bars? Oh. It's so terrible that like either these people who are wrongfully convicted or these people who are convicted for nonviolent crimes. Right. But I really think that, like, we need to reckon with the fact that a lot of people who are incarcerated are there for violent crimes. And, like, I've, like, harmed people in my life. And if I had, like, more trauma in my background, that harm could escalate to, like, a level of violence that could put me behind bars, too, you know? And I think that there needs to be, like, reckoning with, like, it's not – it's much easier – to have this conversation if we imagine that all people who are incarcerated have not, like – commit really harmful crimes but the truth is that like a lot have and like it's this terrible cycle of community level violence that these systems of violence and disinvestment and lack of opportunities leads Mm -hmm. to people hurting each other and i i also think that the people who are um doing these violent crimes have had violence tremendous violence done to them and so it's like to me it's a matter of if we look at where we're at now let's say we're just talking about people who are incarcerated for violent crimes. Like what can we actually do that's going to give us the best outcome? And I think that continuing to subject them to violence and and trauma does nothing for us. Right. And that violence in the form of the prison, you mean, right? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a terrible thing. I totally agree. And, (laughs) and I mean, no, you're definitely right. And I think that, I think it shows. Like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, you have these these high prison rates, you have these high policing budgets, and yet you don't have less crime. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly. And so so let's go back from our long, <laughs> long tangent to what it's like to be inside a prison. And something that I want to talk about a little, there was like one million things I wanted to say just now, and I totally, I totally forgot them. And that's okay. They'll come back up later. Um <laughs> I read through uh, Foucault's Discipline and Punish, mm. and it's a great book. Yes. I actually read it with my family. It was oh, it, it was excellent. Fantastic. Yeah, little book club. <laughs> but um, awesome. one of the things that struck me that I didn't fully grasp before is that the prison warden in the prison is like a tyrant, like a king in a castle with no oversight. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, 
you can be sent to solitary confinement, which is such violence. Going back to what you're saying, such violence. Like the violence of that is is almost incalculable, right? Yeah. And you can be sent there with no trial, no jury of your peers, nothing. Like the warden does what he wants. The, not to mention the warden lets whatever intrapersonal violence he feels like letting continue. Yeah. And oh, okay, I remembered one thing I was going to say. Going back to your your um, commentary on on sort of people that have committed violence are also need to be reckoned with that we can't just assume everyone mm-hmm. we're just going to free all these innocent lovely people right and the fact of the matter is that we need to stop construing people as innocent guilty yes. like well i guess innocent guilty is a legal termination terminology fine but as like lovely versus horrible as <laughs> yeah. different versus us violent versus non-violent right yeah. and so and i think that the the key that should be reckoned with and should be noticed at the very least should be understood is that violence is intertwined with poverty. It's, yes. There's no way around it. Like, to say that these are the more violent people, just, like, it's not as if, it's not as if some people are born violent and some people are born nonviolent. Mm-hmm. And people th- people think that that's the case. Or not even born, but they just choose because they have a stronger willpower mm-hmm. or whatever. You can go down that rabbit, po- rabbit hole as long as you want. But I think that it's it's clear that violence comes from places of poverty. Yeah. And I mean, like, what can, what, how can you reckon with that without understanding that we need to alleviate that poverty? These are basic human needs. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the type of poverty that is leading to this violence. Like, Mm -hmm. the lack of food, the lack of shelter, the lack of water, the lack of a social life, the lack of love. I mean, these are all human needs that, that contribute to this violence. And we Mm -hmm. can't just write off people as violent and that's it. Mm -hmm. And that is not to say that we want to just have violence on the streets. It's quite the opposite, like you said in the beginning. Yeah. And I think that something that was helpful for me when other people did to me um, is, like, taking this from a slightly less abstract political level Mm -hmm. and um, saying, like, thinking of myself, when I'm bad to people, when I cause harm, um, when I'm, you know, mean, cruel, like... When I do that, what's going on for me? It's almost always when I'm, like, stressed, overwhelmed, and anxious. Right. Um, And so when we apply that on, like, a meta level, like, poverty makes us all fearful, stressed, overwhelmed, anxious, you know? And, like, at such a deep, profound, personal, um, like, level, it's just, it's hard to, yeah, even put into words. Um, And so... Why, if we know that about ourselves as human beings, that when we're not in conditions that are loving and supportive, that we're more likely to act out and hurt people, why do we put people in conditions of poverty that are unsupportive and unkind and then expect them to... um, To choose the same, make the same decisions as people that are living comfortable lives. Exactly. And then you put police in those communities at disproportionate rates and then you incarcerate them at right. disproportion it's like so many levels of stacking the deck against right. like marginalized people and like like just to touch on what we were talking about a little bit earlier like legal economic upward mobility like what is that like like if you're really truly starting from the bottom some people become nba stars some people become uh hip hop artists some people become pop stars all these types of things but what is the likelihood that you're going to work really hard at McDonald's and then become the McDonald's manager and then become the CEO? Has that ever happened? I really don't think so. I really don't think so. It's just not the way it works. And just going back to your point about how much harder it is, how decisions are 
different. Decision-making conditions are different based upon the forces acting upon yes. you. Like, I always love to talk about the study that, and I don't love to talk about any of this, actually, because it's actually really horrific. But I, I bring up the study that is that shows the decrease in test scores amongst the same kids on the same test when they haven't eaten properly. Just a little huh. bit, just over yeah. one over the course oh of one gosh. night if they don't have their proper nutrition, and then there's similar things with sleep. But if that shows you how decision-making on tests change, like think about prolonged stress yeah. and starvation and how that changes your decisions. Like people don't reckon with that. They think that... They think that people are just mean, and some people mm -hmm. aren't. And the fact of the matter is, like you said, when I'm mean to people, a lot of the time it's because I'm under these conditions myself. But I also have to reckon with the fact that sometimes I'm mean just because I'm mean. You know what I mean? Like That's a whole different – yeah. Right, like what humans is, – What is human nature? What is, like, oh, are, we, yeah, but, are we selfish beings? And right. That has impl big implications for the whole – It does. Um, but I just wanted to make yeah. a small commentary on <laughs> yeah, it, which yeah. is that, which is that I am mean sometimes. Like it's the fact of the matter. I'm I'm mean. I'm uh, I like I don't think about other people's feelings sometimes, and that's just the way that it is. And not to mention, like everyone has had violence in their life. Like no, there's no one that hasn't pushed someone. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that is violence. That is yeah. it is what it is. And so the fact of the matter is that's another thing we have to reckon with without without falling prey to the bad apple syndrome is yeah. that everyone is mean and everybody does things that we can currently consider wrong yeah absolutely there's no there's no you know creating these neat rigid binaries of good and bad people right and that's all that prisons are you know predicated right upon no certainly and so I'm going to loop us right back <laughs> to what I was talking about with uh, the Foucault book. Mm, yes, um, yes. About how just in general. So he talks about a ton of different stuff <laughs> in that book. He has um, a lot of thoughts, that guy. A, a lot of thoughts, that guy. He's, uh, I love his writing style. It's like he can't understand it, but <laughs> no. somehow it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. But um, um, no, but so like the, the warden as the tyrant, the warden mm, as the, mm -hmm. the all-powerful dictator, it, it's just in police are often the same way. Like, so, for example, and I'm not advocating for putting, uh, you know, police in prison or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, but what yeah. I'm saying is that when police commit violence, it's not violent. Like, police assault does not fall under the category of assault. If they right. assault someone, it is not assault. Why? Because that person is the deserving person of violence, mm -hmm. whereas the police is the the rightful... Is legitimate. Legitimate, yeah. right. The <laughs> rightful, legitimate administrator of the violence. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's wild that how when you, you we think of ourselves as this whole rule of law, very orderly, it applies the same to everyone, our colorblind laws, yes. right? And air quotes. Pair, yeah. Air quotes, right. I forget they can't see that. <laughs> but we, we get to this... This, this idea, this conception in our heads, but then we have the warden who yeah. he does whatever he wants. Like he does anything he wants in a place where nobody can see it. With yeah. who's overseeing the warden? No one that's gonna no one that's gonna do anything to him. And no matter how much violence he commits, the worst possible thing that can happen to the warden and I say worst possible, maybe there are some very few exceptions, but the worst possible thing is he loses his job and finds another one. Yeah. He not that he endures this vile like it's so mm -hmm. it's so disproportionate. I mean similarly like uh, I'm work. I'm doing a little bit of work with uh, Representative Jane Garibay, yes. who is um, who does a lot for nursing homes and is trying to make uh, make it a safer place for residents. Mm -hmm. But when these elderly people are neglected or abused, there there aren't punishments. You know what I mean? There aren't punishments for the administrators, for the mm -hmm. owners. If there's ever punish punishments or blame, it's directed at nursing home staff. 
Yeah. And it's just it, the class discrepancy is so clear and people mm-hmm. don't see it, in my opinion. Yeah. No, that's such a fantastic point. It reminds me of the Stanford prison experiment. Mm, Do you yes. know of that? I don't. Oh, I, I think you've told me about it before, but I forget <laughs> completely. So um, so it's this famous psychology experiment um, where it was, you know, arguably quite unethical. Yeah. And I'll explain in a second um, where basically they take these random people off the street and they assign half of them to be um these these prisoners in this um made up experiment and the other half to be um they took people off the street from where you know this it's like a randomized um you know and did people agree to this do you know i they they did agree to it because they didn't really realize how crazy would get and the experiment had to actually be shut down because it got so bad but okay. essentially half of what them time frame sorry i how many days you mean no what years like oh when did this gosh it, it was, i'll look it up it was you, many continue. Moons ago. you um, continue i think like the 80s but okay. <laughs> you'll you so, yeah you'll soon find out um anywho so half of them um made to be incarcerated people prisoners the other half to be um like wardens correctional officers mm-hmm. and and they all know that this is a study right um a research study and they say to the um officers you can do anything you want and they say to the incarcerated people like you need to play this role um and it goes on for days and days and what happens is that these officers despite knowing that all of these people came in through this study none of these people who were um in this um you know made up prison in this research study lab prison right. um have they they logically know that they haven't done um crimes that have landed them in prison and yet they do incredibly violent things they humiliate them um it gets so bad like they're they're saying terrible things to them verbal assault um public humiliation shaming all these things get so bad that they have to shut down the study yeah um altogether and and yet that study is often used to be like, oh, look at the terrible things that happen when people are given power and um, they're not held accountable. But the study is, interestingly enough, almost never applied to prisons itself. Yeah. We almost never think like, huh, maybe the prison model we right. have is actually really harmful and leads to lots of corruption and violence. Yeah, and think about when people logically know that these people have committed crimes. And then think about what it's like to be treated like an animal, like subhuman. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just, I can't even fathom it. But please continue. Yeah, Um, I mean, that was my main point. We, in one of my classes, we've been um, Zooming in a lot of currently and formerly incarcerated people. The classes... Um, called Human Rights Through Performance Incarceration. Mm -hmm. I'd highly recommend it to anyone at Trinity College. Um, But what a lot of the people are saying, a lot of the incarcerated people, is they're telling stories about how these officers are saying cruel, demeaning things about them um, while they're in their cell and they can't do anything about it. If they talk back, they're going to get in trouble. Um, These officers are making fun of them and like discussing their crime that happened and really demeaning ways. And it's just so many layers of dehumanization that are happening yeah. in prison. This is just one of them, but this total social ostracization, um, making incarcerated people feel like in the words of one of the people who came to talk to us, like they're not real people. Right. She had convinced herself that there were real people on the outside and that her herself was not a real person. Right. Um, 
And there's just, like, if you go into the prison from what she talks about, like, there's no ind- no indication in her treatment that she's a real person. We wouldn't even do this to animals. Right. You know, when we see, like, animals in these cages at puppy mills and there's mm-hmm. public outcry, this is so terrible. We mm-hmm. need to stop this. And yet people are warehoused every day, cut from all of their social ties, like, not able to see nature and beauty or do art a lot of the time depending on um how intense their um unit is and like it just goes on and people don't get upset about it and it's just it's ridiculous as you said and i mean you say that they say cruel and demeaning things but even beyond that they don't even have to say anything cruel because there's this impalpable power dynamic between Mm -hmm. the the prison warden the prison guard and the the person because this is the real person and this is the not real person like they don't even have to say anything even for i'm sure there's prison guards that are nice right yeah absolutely. but even that is like oh like hey how are you like you but like in this there's this impalpable power dynamic that is mm-hmm. in itself dehumanizing yeah and and like i mean you talk about the an- animal situation but the reason for that there's public outcry and there's not for prisons is because people think that prisoners deserve it. Yeah, that's the crux of it, really. And I think if, like, if we put our minds, if we try to imagine just how cruel and inhumane prisons are, I think we would say, I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. And then yet we do that every single day to people we don't even know, whose stories we don't even know. And it's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. And you can't say that it, we don't do it. You say I don't do it. Well, we all vote, and if we're gonna if we're gonna think of this as a participatory democracy, then we do all. Yeah, vote. and you know we're not out in the streets right. protesting it every day. You know, so like we do there's do very little urgency um, just among most of the people I talk to when talking about things that are happening in prison. There's a lot of calls for reform, but they don't seem particularly urgent. Or right, yeah. And and I will say like you talk about um, you talk about I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy and a lot of times I like to I hope to I like to think that's true but I will say that and this is a product this is a product mm-hmm. of our our culture and what we think of as possible and what we think of as okay yes. but there are, like there are times where people will be so hurt that I'm not sure that that statement will always stand like. Like I like if I try to think about like if someone I loved was like killed or like mm-hmm. raped or you know these yeah. violent like I can totally see myself desiring that you know mm-hmm. what I mean and and of course I desire that because it's become a cultural possibility I've been told that this is one thing that can happen and so and and I also don't really know what it's like so mm-hmm. I can I can wish this horrible harm I mean does that solve anything no in, in an ideal world the harm wouldn't happen in the first place that's yeah. what we're that's yeah. what we're hoping for here. <laughs> Yeah. No, and I think it's really complicated. I think it's really easy to say, like, from a point of privilege and healing, mm-hmm. or, like, you know, I, I don't have any serious traumas in my history to right. say, like, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I don't really have worst right. enemies. Right, yes. It's like, really I'm, easy to say. My worst enemy, I don't. I wouldn't even wish that, like, the elevator door closed inconveniently. <laughs> like, I don't really know anyone. Exactly, yeah. Um, and at the same time, I think, like, we can say that our policy decisions should be coming from the most, like, caring healed um humane part of us you know and when Mm -hmm. trauma happens to us that chips away at our capacity for care um and to really empathize with other people because we're so absorbed in just survival and you know keeping keeping ourselves going people don't Um, understand that that like that people are some people are concerned with survival they don't get that absolutely and so i think that a lot of people will say like 
well, what about victims and victims' families? Um, and, like, what about justice for them? I would say justice, like, to me, justice is loving and it doesn't involve um, cruelty towards other human beings. Mm-hmm. It, it, it works towards nonviolence so something like that doesn't happen again. And it works towards providing survivors, victims, their families with as much support as possible. Um, and I would also say one more thing on that line. Um, yeah. People often say, what about the families of the victims? Um, and that's totally valid. And what about the families of the people who are going to be locked in prison for the right. rest of their lives? Like this total disregard for um, the idea that these people who are being incarcerated are people who are often so deeply loved and cherished. Right. You Their know? brothers, sisters, yeah. fathers, mothers, like people don't people don't recognize that. Mm-hmm. It's no, it's certainly true. And I mean, I think that, you know. Actually, I'll save that for the end. But I think you're, I think you're totally spot on. We do like that's a separate thing almost. What is justice? And it's not something I've really thought about a lot, but uh, it's something I should think about more because you know, what is justice? Can you have a conception of justice that is not formed by society? Not really. It's going to be formed one way or the other. But, but no, it, that's a really interesting topic too. So yeah, I want to switch gears a little bit slightly, mm-hmm. and I've I'm coming to the realization now <laughs> as we get over the hour mark that. Uh, Part two of this episode, which was going to be about so what, what do we do, is going to have to be actually episode two, which will hopefully come out shortly. I know you will all be on the edge of your seats. But I do want to talk about a little bit um, the institution of policing Mm, and the question of what do police really do? And and along those same lines are what do prisons really do? The reason police are in my head is because I just read this recently. Mm -hmm. But so it's interesting because what do police really do? Well, police... Most of the time, they come to a situation of violence after the fact. Yes. They're not going to fix that violence or go back in time and rewind it. What they're really going to do is, if anything, add their own violence to the right. mix. Yeah. And there's two argu- there's only two arguments where that even makes sense as a system. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to hopefully remember them both and challenge them both. Right. One is that, you know, we need this threat of um, state violence, of incarceration of prisons to get people to stop committing crimes right that is just not borne out in the data that i've seen well it just doesn't work i mean we have that and we still have crimes so tell me what's going wrong here yeah and there is lots of research um specifically on the death penalty that shows that that's not even a consideration when people are committing these acts of violence Mm -hmm. um and then the other argument is that people are changed in prisons and that um well that's ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) yeah they may be changed but you know, for the worse, probably for the worse, you know. Um, and so I, I also think that argument is not a good one um, in that, you know, if we continue to saturate people with um, violence and dehumanization, the idea that they'll come out of society and be able to fully reintegrate right. and be better and be kinder to people. People can absolutely take the time to heal themselves in prison, you know, mm-hmm. but they can also take the time to heal themselves outside of prison. And being in prison is violent in and of itself. You're stripping people right. away from their families. makes it harder to heal. Yourself. It's also incredibly expensive. And so oh, if yeah. you're trying to find ways to reduce violence, which I assume we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, yeah. When we talk about police and their real function, I think there is better ways to do that with the enormous amount of money that's going into policing. No, definitely. That's what all that type of stuff is about. Budget cuts and those sorts of things to reinvest in 
in alleviating the poverty that usually gives rise to prisons. Mm -hmm. So you're saying the two main functions of police are deterrence and what was that one? Oh, reform. Well, that's prisons. And rehabilitation. With the that, prison police, it's like a yes. combo. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about deterrence and reform. And that those are the arguments that, you know, maintain right. the... So to anticipate a counter-argument to something I said earlier, I said, yes. I said, well, we have all this deterrence, mm-hmm. and yet we still have the crime, so tell me what's wrong. Well, some people might say, some people might say, well, what's wrong is we don't have enough deterrence. <laughs> What do you think about that? And I'm trying to think. I what mean, I, think I would about just think now. we have more prisons and police than any other nation in the world. Right. And so if they worked, we would have very low crime rates. Mm-hmm. But we don't see that happening at all. Right. Um, so I, I think that that argument just like on its face does not stand at all. And they might work if some people were just fundamentally bad and violent and others weren't like we often think of them as. But it's just not it is I don't know what justice is, but I know that it is an <laughs> injustice to have a prison system and a policing system that just basically targets people that are in poverty already and puts them through this system of extra violence while they're already experiencing more intense intrapersonal violence in their impoverished communities and in their impoverished conditions mm-hmm. as a way of separating these people and eliminating them from this ruling class society that is living their best lives and if you know someone that goes to prison that's crazy like it's just a completely it's two different worlds it's two different class worlds it's two different experiences of america there's it's two different americas really is what it is yeah it really is and something that um i think a lot of people will say is like well there's research that putting police in areas actually does decrease the rates of violent crime Right. That research is contested, but there is like a body of research that says mm-hmm. that. So I want to engage with it. Um, yeah. So on the one hand, I'd say there is also a lot of research that says the opposite. But there is research right. that says like, that. For me, I, I on, am not buying that research, yeah. but continue it. <laughs> there is a lot of research that says, um, at least on a short term level, putting more police in communities reduces the level of violent crime. But we don't see that it reduces it that much, you know? Right. Um, Like in communities like Chicago, which um, first off, I would just like to say that I think Chicago is often tossed around as like this incredibly violent, terrible, scary place. Mm -hmm. It's not. There is like so many lovely parts of Chicago. A lot of the places with the highest levels of violence have so many like lovely people and community organizations and so much resistance to that violence happening within that community. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah. And um, we see that when, like I'm using Chicago as an example, cause I live close to it. Um, when we do see Chicago pouring tons of money into police in tons. these um, like black and brown poor communities is really the only places that they're funneling so much money right. into policing. Um, we still see that rates of like shootings are not decreasing substantially at all. Still dozens and dozens of community members, beloved family members and aunts and uncles and friends are being killed mm-hmm. each summer or and even more so each year. Um, and so it's just not enough. And we're investing so much money and the result is still not good. So right. many people being killed. And so the question that I have um, is how do we create a better system? You know, right. it's not does police does policing work to reduce crime, but is it the best, most nonviolent way to reduce crime? Almost surely not. You right. know, we're 
putting so, so, so much money in yeah. and we're not getting results. And we also know, like, intuitively that um, policing can be traumatic and violent for oh, the communities. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these two these two levels of these communities are experiencing the violence of policing and they're also um, not experiencing the money that um, could be going to social services, yes. could be going to education and after school programming and job training that all helps provide people with the opportunity mm -hmm. they need to not be... Um, wrapped up in a cycle of crime. Um, and so they're missing out on all those opportunities that actually could reduce crime or could reduce violence from a root causes level because we're investing so much yes. in um, police, which are supposed to treat the symptoms. Well, it treats the symptoms um, of poverty and it doesn't even do that. Exactly. Right. Well put. Yeah. And I think, I think before I go to somewhere that I want to go, I want to touch <laughs> on this idea that we've also, you know, kind of been we've been reckoning with is this sort of illusion in America of complete democracy. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it, it manifests itself so clearly in certain aspects. A, maybe you have a demo democratic budget vote, which first of all is it's really watered down from the point where you get to democracy and budgeting. Budgeting mm -hmm. is a really complex, you know, boring thing that people don't have time yeah. for. Right. But even after that, who decides where these police officers go that get this funding, right? Because it's not it's not a vote. It's not put to a vote. It's yeah. it's like the tyrant of the warden, you know. Like right. it's similar these the ways these things work. And then as I'm I'm working with the uh, Connecticut General Assembly this year, this spring, and one thing you notice very clearly is that the interests and the pursuit of the interests of the impoverished and the pursuit of justice for the impoverished is missing from the discussion and the reason it's missing from the discussion is because no one can bring it there yeah they're like they don't people don't have time if they're in poverty to come and start arguing about the laws to to study the laws to track a bill yeah. is a taxing process and so i think it should just be said that this idea we have that well you know we all voted on it and this is what we got to well not all of us had time to vote on it not all of us knew to vote on it and not all of us thought that voting knew how to vote on it and not all of us thought that voting of voting on it was even like an option or something that we just might have thought to do yeah and so the the place i wanted to go to wrap up let's see where are we at here okay yeah it's time to start wrapping up <laughs> the place i wanted to go last is is really something that you touched on it's so what do we do basically mm -hmm. and i think that you know an interesting thing that my mom said when I've talked to her about this and my dad is that, um, well, you say all this, but we don't know what would happen if we stopped having prisons and stopped having polices, police. It might get it might get worse. And the fact of the matter is that's true. There's there's not many places that I know of that have data. Of course, there were places in older societies that didn't have prisons and policing. But it's true. We don't know what would happen. But what I think is what's clear is what's happening now is not okay. It's mm -hmm. in unjust, it's wrong, and it's not working. I mean, a lot of people, I think it's almost like dehumanizing and wrong in itself to frame it in terms of taxpayer money, but taxpayer money, we spend so much money on yeah. prisons, prisoners, policing every year when we could be spending it on other things. And so for me, the question is, if police aren't working, why aren't we trying other things? Or why aren't we at the very least thinking about other things? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I feel like really lacks from conversations, even about defunding the police, which is mm -hmm. a conversation that I like to talk about a lot. 
there is very little engagement with like, okay, in the short term, as we transition to this abolitionist future that we're all dreaming up together, right. um, what happens when like serious violence occurs, mm-hmm. you know? Because it is really, really not enough to say that we're going to get rid of all prisons and police and we're just going to invest it solely in like education and job training and stuff like that and no violence is going to happen. Welfare housing. There is a transition period, you know? Um, And we'll probably never... I don't want to say that. It will take a long time, if ever, to get to a place where we have truly nonviolent societies. And it seems like if... It seems like the biggest hurdle is when you're going through those transitions and violence peaks a little, when it spikes a little, and we need the police back, we need the prisons back. So how do we actually manage and address the root causes of violence and harm when they spike up while we're transitioning to these um, preventative strategies of violence. Right. And I think that one, I don't know all the research on it, but two, I know that programs exist that um, really do a good job of meeting people exactly where they are and trying to cut off the cycle of violence. So Mm -hmm. take, for example, um, violence among gangs. Um, And so this isn't all violence. A lot of, um, like, murders happen within um, relationships. And that's that's important to note because I think a lot of times it's like, all the violence is, like, it's gang violence in inner cities, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't true. But let's take um, violence that happens between gangs as an example. Um, There is research that shows for every one person shot, nine people are shot in response, in retaliation. It goes back and forth and back and Mm -hmm. forth and back and forth. And so there's these programs that have popped up that um, actually work with people immediately after they've been shot and their close web of connections. And they say, what can we possibly do to make sure that you don't retaliate? What supports do you need? What kind of community um, organizing and like peacemaking negotiations needs to happen in order to make sure that your people do not shoot at the person that shot you. Right. And so that's like the kind of like messy relational, but absolutely critical work that needs to be done. And that reduces um, like those levels of retaliation and violence so significantly, Um, like way more significantly than police or prisons do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's stuff like that, that it's like, I think on a, you know, that's intuitive. That makes sense when we're able to think about it and take a step back from the um, chokehold that is policing yeah. in prisons that has on our society and our conception of public safety. We can say that makes sense. Once violence occurs, how do we think about what can we absolutely do to stop it right here? Right. And there's lots of programs in place that are doing that. And Sometimes it's getting people mental health treatment. Sometimes it's getting people therapy. Sometimes it's getting people jobs. Right. You know, sometimes it's getting people housing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's getting people housing outside of a community where um, like they're automatically placed into a gang because um, that's the community that they're a part of. They already have too many relationships there. They need like a whole new neighborhood. It's all these like kind of messy, complicated, not systematic ways like they're so relational but there's programs for um reducing violence in those ways that i think like that's the only way through violence is messy and it's relational and it can't be solved by like the catch-all of prisons for policing Mm -hmm. and i think just going off that i think i'm not fond of these 
ideas, and I, I know this is what you were saying, but I'm not mm-hmm. fond of this, well, what we need is education. Because the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is you can't educate violence out of a community. Like, so much of it is material distribution, wealth mm-hmm. distribution, wealth, at this point, wealth redistribution. Mm-hmm. And that's why, I mean, these types of programs are great. But for me, at some point, and I know there's a lot of a lot of contestation about whether abolition as a movement should be engaged with the state or avoiding the state. Mm-hmm. But for me, the power that the state has in wealth distribution and in material changes is so important because, mm-hmm. I mean, these groups can only do so much. If these groups could guarantee these, let's say there's 10 members in the gang that really want to shoot back at this person, if they can guarantee these people certain material guarantee certain material mm-hmm. things to them it will I'm, I'm of course it won't be deterministic but it'll very it's very likely to decrease the chances that this violence continues and of course it's education like you said it's mental health training but it's not just that mm-hmm. like it's totally like we talked about earlier the the intrinsic the intrinsic entanglement between violence and poverty is a real thing yeah and, and that's such an important poverty uh, such an important part of it and it's true that it's true that education and mental health are a big parts of it too and that society culture it's all a big part of it but we can't forget about the materiality of it and the materiality of it the materiality of it is the most convenient thing to forget yeah absolutely because you can say like oh well, these community groups can do whatever they right. want it's really as... easy to give you a community yes. group it's harder to give you money exactly. for housing food water and that would I think like grounding it in like you know, some lived experiences that maybe some of the listeners, maybe they're also like upper middle class or they're connected to people. I would who assume have, most of them are, yes. Yeah, who have um, wealth and support. And I would say like for me as someone who had like almost all the resources they needed, if not all, if not more than I needed growing up, like I didn't grow up and was like, I really want to be a bank robber or I really yeah. want to kill someone. Like, when we're given better options, we choose them because it's not... Oh, my God. Brilliant point. <laughs> Brilliant point because guess what? Bank robbing is cool. I've seen bank robbing and I thought it was really cool, but I'm still not going to do it. Yeah. And the main reason I'm not going to do it is not because I'm afraid of going to prison. Yes, that's part of it. Fine. It's a, a partial deterrent. But the fact of the matter is the real deterrent is that I can do other things that are yeah, also that cool, are better. that are easier. It's yeah. easier. It's easier for me to go to school than rob a bank. It, that's it the fact of the matter. too, you right. know? But yeah. if it was easier for me to rob a bank, if it was more likely to provide me what I needed, that's what I would do. And mm-hmm. that's the fact of the matter. And I think, you know, I think I think we should wrap it up. And I think <laughs> we're really going to get into next time. I'm going to I'm going to prescribe two parts for next episode that may <laughs> awesome. itself be again broken up into two more parts. But I think that it's important to and a lot of abolitionists like to avoid this. And I don't mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel bad calling myself an abolitionist because, you know, they're that's their whole careers or whatnot. So I think we I think we can all I don't think we need to gate. We can all abolition. we don't need to gatekeep it. OK, fair enough. Um, well, maybe I'm a little undecided then. That's what I'll go with. <laughs> but um, I think that. I mean, I do agree with most of the general sentiments. It's hard to come by one that I disagree with, but I think I just want to think about it more. Mm-hmm. But so I think we need to theorize, you know, I, I want to talk about what does the ideal society look like? And then more importantly, how do we get there? Yes. What do we do next? What are the possibilities? Mm-hmm. And what could change? How could it change? And what are the pros and cons of each of these things? Is any of it really possible? We've talked about the problems. Now, is change possible and how is it possible? And I think that will be the subject of future episodes. I can't wait.
No, it's really exciting. <laughs> please, uh, please email any questions, concerns, or comments to the podcast of things at gmail.com. I will be checking them, and they will definitely be brought up in the next discussion yes. that I'm really excited to have. It's so been exciting. great talking with you, Anna. It's been great. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I hope all the listeners had a great time. I know it's mm. been a longer one, but <laughs> let's be realistic. We should just be uh, grateful it wasn't 10 hours. <laughs> so have a great rest of your night. Thank you.